For more information about the songs, writers, and artists featured here, please visit rabbitroom.com. Rabbit Room theme music composed and performed by Ben Shive. Welcome to The Rabbit Room. I'm Andrew Peterson. For the next several episodes of The Rabbit Room podcast, leading up to Easter Sunday, we are honored to present a series of sermons by Pastor Russ Ramsey of Oak Hills Presbyterian Church in Overland Park, Kansas. Russ describes them as a sermon series focused on the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, Palm Sunday through Easter Sunday, examining the validity of Jesus' claim that no one would take his life from him, but that he'd lay it down of his own accord and take it up again on the third day. If you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel according to John, and we are going to be looking at John chapter 19, verses 31 through 42 this morning, as we continue in this study on the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. It says at the top of your green handout, part 22. That means for 22 Sundays, which amounts to five months worth of Sundays, we've been making our way through eight days in time in Scripture. And really, we're only about into the sixth day of those eight days. We've been spending a lot of time here. We come to a very sober moment today, and that is the burial of Jesus, the burial of his lifeless body. Now, as we've moved along in this series, there has been a source of great hope for me. And the source of great hope for me as a preacher is is that I know how this ends. I know what this story takes us to. I know where we're going with this. That by the time we are done, and we get to part 24 and 25 and 26, there is a risen Christ. And he interacts with his disciples. And he reinstates Peter, who fled and denied even knowing him. And he begins the glorious work of establishing his church on earth, of which we are all actively or passively, at least in this room, engaging in in one way or another, his visible church on earth. And I think about that, and I think there's nothing in my life that is unaffected by his resurrection. Everything in my life that I can think of has been profoundly shaped and formed because Christ is alive and risen. The very fact that I I stand where I stand right now and I do the job that I do right now is because he's alive. The very fact that I know the woman I married is because he's alive. The relationships with my children 
many, many, many of my friends. All of this is because we share the risen Christ. So this has been a hope. But there's also been apprehension for me because I knew when we started that we'd be at part 22 or 23 and we still wouldn't be to the risen Christ yet. And mainly we'd just be in the hard stuff. That we'd have to get to that most glorious of days, Resurrection Sunday. We'd have to get there honestly, which meant logging a lot of hours covering some brutally horrible and terribly sad moments. One of these days we're gonna have these sermons on a podcast um, soon. I have all of them in my iTunes file right now. We are over 12 hours of pulpit time in this series. So, well done (laughs) for those of you who are hanging with me. In the last study, we examined the physiology and the brutality of the death of Jesus. Today, we turn to the inevitable next chapter, and that is his burial. But we're going to see something today that we've seen every time we've been through any message in this series, and it holds true, and that's that there hasn't been one part of the story yet, and there won't be. There hasn't been one part of the story yet that hasn't been infused with the grace of God and his love for his people. It's everywhere. It's everywhere in this story. Even the awful parts are because of his love for his people. And so today I am happy to report that the account of the burial of Jesus is no different in that regard, that there is incredible grace and mercy and hope even now. And so I would invite all who are able to stand for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, all-sufficient word, John chapter 19, verses 31 to 42. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, he came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. 
So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is God's word. You may be seated as we pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. We are reminded when we read passages like this that what it means to be in a relationship with you is not that we just believe an abstract list of uh, proverbs and teachings and concepts, but that we are talking about a real Savior who lived a real life and died a real death and was buried in a real grave and really rose. And I thank you for that, Father, and I pray that you would search our hearts. Lord, this morning's message is very much an invitation to believe. I do not believe, Father, that we can believe in you apart from your help, apart from your opening our eyes and giving us eyes to see and ears to hear. So, Lord, I pray for every heart in this room that you would do just that. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we may believe. Thank you for your word. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. It was a new tomb. But I want us to go back a little bit in this story. I want us to go back about five days in time. And remember just briefly Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem as he rode into the city on donkey on Palm Sunday, which we celebrate next week. As he rode in, crowds of enthusiastic Jews lined the streets. He rode on a donkey, and they were shouting as he passed by, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Hosanna is not a name. It's a word that means save us now. Hosanna. And as Jesus rode on that donkey into the city where he would be sentenced to execution, people gathered and they laid palms and coats at his feet and created this royal path for him declaring him to be the king of Israel, which was ironically the charge that would be printed on the sign that would hang above his head as he died on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. It was a bold thing for Jesus to ride into the city that way, not just because the chief priests were already planning to kill him, not just because the Romans were very paranoid and touchy, especially during Passover, about any hint of insurgency. It was bold because he accepted the declaration that he was king when he rode. Somebody even came and said, you need to make them be quiet or there's going to be trouble. Don't you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said, I hear what they're saying. And if they don't say it, the very stones beneath my feet are going to cry out that I am the king. He was, after all, the king. But what the people anticipated from Jesus and who Jesus actually was, there was a lot of distance between those two ideas. And I ask us the question right now as we sit here, what do you expect from Jesus as king? What do you expect from him? If your faith is in him, if you're saying, I'm thinking about pledging my allegiance to Jesus, what, why? 
What are you expecting from him with that? Most of the people of Israel's expectations were such that they didn't have room for him to die early. I mean, this was the one, he, he could have toppled Roman paganism. He could have been a, a revitalization to their religion. He could have led them to the kind of prosperity and security and strength that they hadn't enjoyed since their first great king, David. But entering the city, whatever their expectations were, Jesus' expectations were different. They were different. And he said something on Palm Sunday that I want us to hear as we then focus on this account of his burial. Here's what he said on Palm Sunday. He rode into the city of Jerusalem and he said this. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Notice he didn't say the hour has come for the Son of Man to be killed. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he said this, and this is a familiar text, understand that he said it on Palm Sunday. He said, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. That's not the most amazing part of this moment on Palm Sunday. Because when he said, Father, glorify your name, a miracle happened. And that is a voice from heaven spoke. We read about it in John 12. A voice came from heaven, I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. And then Jesus said to the people there, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. The prince of this world will be driven out, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Whatever the expectations were that the people had about Jesus, Jesus knew that his purpose in returning to Jerusalem was to finish what he had come to do. The time had come to finish. He had come to be lifted up on the cross. And he said that his death would draw people to himself. Now I ask you this question. Is he drawing you to himself right now? When we studied the life of Judas earlier in this series and the betrayal we read in the upper room that Jesus said, one of you will betray me. He said this to his closest followers. One of you will betray me. And then the scriptures tell us that they all looked at each other and they asked, is it me? And what that tells us is that no one in the room was just looking at Judas and saying, it's that dude. Nobody was saying that. I bring that up because I'm asking you a question. Is he drawing you to himself right now? 
And I say it in this context, everybody in this room might think you're a believer. And you may know you're not. Is he drawing you to himself? Jesus' death was no accident. He laid it down of his own accord. And John wrote of his gospel from which we read and from which we get this story of the end of Jesus' earthly ministry and the beginning of the establishment of his church on earth. John said, these things are written. I wrote these that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What do you believe about Jesus today? What do you believe about him? Jesus said that his death would draw people to himself. He said, I will be lifted up from the earth and I will draw men to myself. Today's text is a story of of two. Two men who appeared as though they were followers of God, leaders in their community, and he draws them to himself. He draws them out of hiding, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And my prayer as we look at the account of his burial is that he would draw all of us closer to him now. After the travail of the cross, Jesus said just before he died, it is finished. And we have to ask the question, what was finished? What was finished was everything that a person needed in order to be saved was accomplished. All the sacrificial requirements of God's law had been met. All of the prophecies concerning the Messiah had been fulfilled, even down to the slaughter of one perfect, spotless Passover lamb. As he hung on the cross, they mocked him and they said, if you're the Christ, save yourself and come down from the cross. Such a rich illustration of how we expect certain things from Jesus and he expects other things. If you're the Christ, come down and save yourself. But it was God's will that he should die. It was God's will that he should die. And so he proved that he was the son of God, not by coming down from the cross at the last minute, but by staying on it to the end and fulfilling the will of his father in heaven. What shall I say? Father, take me from this hour, remove this cup from me. It's for this hour that I came. So he remained on the cross and he died and he was buried and every one of us then has to do something with the death of Jesus Christ. Every one of us. And I'm gonna give you the only options you have. You have to do something with the death of Jesus Christ. You do have options. Here's what they are. C.S. Lewis summarized it this way. He said that we really have three options regarding Jesus and, and how we view him. He's either a liar or he's a lunatic or he's Lord. Those are the three options that we have. And I would add one more option that you have, being that we are postmoderns, and that is that you can just not engage the question if you want. You can just say, I prefer not to engage with that. That is an option that you have. But here's the thing. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be God's Redeemer, and he was either lying about this, he was deluded and crazy, or He was correct. 
And the question here before us is, who do you say that he is? And the follow-up question to that is, and upon what basis have you arrived at your answer? How do you know? What makes you answer the way that you do? How certain are you that you are right? The chief priests have been a part of this story in an ongoing way. And what we see from them is that their answer to the question, who is Jesus Christ, is their split between he's a liar or he's a lunatic. And there are three examples that we see of their just unwillingness to entertain any other possibility. Three behaviors of theirs in these last moments of his life. The first comes, and we studied this a while back, is when they've tried Jesus and they found him worthy of death, they bring him to Pontius Pilate because only Pontius Pilate can actually give somebody the death penalty. And so they have to bring him to Pilate. But when they do, John tells us, to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So the chief priests, they wanted to stay clean for the Passover. And if you entered the home of a Gentile, you were defiled and you had to make yourself ceremonially pure again before you could formally observe the Passover. And they didn't want to do that. And it's just rich with irony because it's this holiday, Passover, celebrating the way God liberated his people from unjust oppression, and now ironically, the priests are standing as unjust oppressors outside of Pontius Pilate's headquarters because they don't want to be made ceremonially unclean even as they're bringing false testimony against Jesus. It's messed up. This is messed up. Pilate has to come outside just to hear the charges. They have no regard for the man they are bringing for crucifixion, none. The second sign of their oblivion to the person of Jesus Christ is when Pontius Pilate writes the sign that lists the charge that he's been found guilty of, that makes him worthy of crucifixion. Pilate wrote in Hebrew, or in Aramaic, Greek, and Latin, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And they were more worried about the wording of the sign than the man who was dying. The third evidence of their coldness toward Jesus, their unwillingness to recognize him as anything other than either a liar or a crazy man, is in today's text, and it centers upon the removal of the bodies from the cross. And next week when we talk about this more, there's an added wrinkle that shows incredible duplicity on the chief priest's part. Deuteronomy 21 says this, if a man guilty of a capital offense is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. To the chief priests, then, it was vital that these bodies be taken down before sundown because sundown is when the, when the Passover, the Sabbath, the high day started. And this wasn't just any Sabbath. And they didn't want it defiled. This was the Passover. This was the big one. And so they asked Pilate, hurry the process. Break the men's legs so that they'll be dead before sundown so that we can get them off the cross and we don't 
dirty up this holiday where we remember how God liberated us from oppression and tyranny and evil. So they came and they broke the men's legs and when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. Now just to be sure, a soldier poked him in the side with a spear. It's a good way to determine if somebody's dead or not. If you poke them with a spear, do they move? And they didn't. Blood and water flowed from his side. He was dead. These chief priests, they didn't see what was happening. They didn't see it. But then John writes, I saw it. He said, a soldier came with a spear in his hand and he thrust it into Jesus' side and a mixture of blood and water came out. It's a detail that only John gives us and it's a detail that he gives us because he saw it happen. How do we know he saw it happen? He tells us he saw it happen. He says, he who saw it has borne witness and his testimony is true. I saw it. Why is he telling us this? He's telling us this because John wants his readers to understand that the fact that his legs weren't broken, the fact that his side was pierced, these are both evidences that support his identity as the Messiah. This detail of his legs not being broken and his side being pierced, these two details were prophesied as one of the many ways that you would know the true Messiah. By now, John in his gospel had pointed out at least 11 specifics in the life and death of Jesus that were spoken of by the prophets. On the back of your bulletin, there's many more. I think there's 22, uh, and that's not all of them, but 22 examples of John writing about prophecies about Christ that were fulfilled as John saw them happen. What he's telling us is Jesus, as he hangs on the cross, the one who claims to be the Christ and the Messiah, He doesn't defy scripture's predictions and descriptions of the Messiah, but he embodies them. He embodies all of them. He embodies minutia perfectly. But there were men there who were identified publicly as leaders of God's people, and they did not see it. Most of them did not see it. But there were a couple who did, I'm happy to say. Joseph of Arimathea, he asked Pilate if he could have Jesus' body. And there was another man named Nicodemus who helped Joseph of Arimathea prepare and bury Jesus' body. These two men had some fascinating things in common. Here's what they had in common. They were both members of the Sanhedrin. They were both from the court of the chief priests. Did you know that? They were both wealthy. We know this because Joseph of Arimathea provided a tomb. Nicodemus provided 75 pounds of spices for Jesus' burial. We also know that they were both waiting for the Messiah, Mark 15, 43, and John 3, 2. They both believed that Jesus was from God, John 3, 2, and 19, 38. 
We also know that as members of the Sanhedrin, both of them, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, on different occasions, attempted to defend Jesus before the Sanhedrin. That's awesome. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they were sinners, but they were decent. They were decent, upright men. But they had something else in common. They were both, up until here, secret disciples of Jesus. They were secret disciples of Jesus because they feared the Jews. John says that throughout Jesus' ministry, there were many Jewish leaders who believed in Jesus, but they wouldn't confess their faith because they were afraid that they would be put out of the synagogue. And they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Joseph of Arimathea, according to 1938, John 1938, was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Nicodemus, according to John 3, he wanted to learn about being born again. He's the one who went to Jesus and said, let's talk about this being born again business because it doesn't make sense to me. But Nicodemus had this conversation with Jesus under cover of darkness in the middle of the night to avoid being discovered as one who wanted to know Jesus. So I ask, can you relate to these two men that there's something secretive about your faith? You don't really want people to know. You're not really sure if you want to commit. You might say, I'm somebody who's still trying Christianity on. I would ask you this question today. If you're still trying Christianity on, why? Why? Is, be, is it because there's an intellectual obstacle? There might be. Doesn't mean it's a barrier, by the way. Is it because of your lifestyle and you, you just don't want to lay that aside right now? Or maybe you're afraid of how you're going to appear in the eyes of other people if they find out that you're a Christian. Maybe they'll think you're soft or maybe they'll think you're not very intelligent or maybe they'll think that you're just superstitious and blind and not a man of the world or a, or a woman of the world. I can tell you this. Jesus said that his death would draw people to himself. And among the first fruits of that statement, we find Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, and Jesus is drawing them out. He's drawing them out of hiding. Why did they come out of hiding here? The reason is because before Jesus' death, they had a certain luxury that you may feel is a luxury of your own. It was this that their decisions concerning their devotion to Jesus were allowed to remain academic and ideological. It was really kind of an intellectual exercise is all it really was. It didn't have any bearing on the here and now of my life and the day-to-day -day operations. They flirted with messianic concepts, but they never engaged the man who embodied them. But Jesus wasn't just a teacher with differing views now. He wasn't just an intriguing man with a novel perspective. He laid down his life unto death for them. And they had to engage Jesus not only on the basis of his teaching, 
but also on the basis of that teaching in the context of this expression of love for his people in offering up his life. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us if we can understand mysteries, we can be brilliant people but don't love, it's nothing. It's nothing. And here they're being confronted with the love of Jesus right here. By his death, they were drawn near. They were drawn out. They were engaged with the question of the identity of Jesus Christ. And with this text before us now, I pray that that we would be to all of us. Stay with me. Stay with me. Because there is this question before us. Who is this Jesus? Who is he? Has Christianity been merely the observation of a religion for you? I pray that our hearts would be awakened by the expression of God's love towards sinners, that we would see the cross, that we would see that he didn't come down from it, that that he went through it, that we would continue to say, and what happened next, and what happened next, and that we would be awakened and that we would be drawn out and that we would engage Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I cannot tell you how real this is to me. I cannot tell you how preoccupied my mind has been for the last two weeks that we are moving from death to life. I cannot tell you the joy that just comes over me in the strangest places without any provocation because he is alive. Amen. Amen. So I'm just going to leave my notes there for a second. In fact, we're just not even going to When I was five, he drew my parents out, and I saw it. When I was 15, 16 years old, he drew me out, and nothing has been the same since. Christianity is not an expression of a religious belief that's handy to have because it serves you well in difficult situations. Christianity will create a lot of problems for you because it requires that you be honest and it requires that you confess that you're a sinner and that you have an enormous capacity that you wield to hurt people deeply but he moves his people from death to life. And we're in this rare little window of time in this story where the Christ is dead and not yet risen. And I know for many of us, this is where our hearts are. We've heard the story and we've seen what's happened, but we haven't come alive yet. And I'm praying, Lord, Draw people to yourself. Melt our hearts. Show us 
the burden of sin in our own lives and the way that we creak and groan and buckle under the weight and then melt it away and bring us from death to life. Bring us from death to life. Bring us from death to life. And he does.